Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. If you have your Bibles, would you take them out? And we're going to Exodus chapter 2. We're going to watch as God prepares a deliverer. Chapter 2 is Moses' own account. He wrote the book of Exodus, of course. And so this is his own biographical account, autobiographical account, telling uh, how he grew up, some of the things that happened. Chapter 3, we'll hear God's call. As God calls Moses to his role as a deliverer. But chapter 2, we're seeing how God prepared him. And we're going to see that it took place over his his whole lifetime. As uh, from, from early childhood right on up, God prepared him for this calling as a deliverer. And of course, the point we're going to make today is that God has called all of us to also be deliverers. And the kinds of things that we see being worked into Moses' life is the sort of things God works into ours as well. If we choose to answer the call. Something miraculous happens when you say yes to Jesus. And I don't simply mean get your own hide saved. Some people are simply interested in getting themselves to heaven and that's just really the extent of their concern. But that really is a very dishonest approach because when you said yes to Jesus, you called him Lord. And you said, I'll take up my cross and I'll follow you. And that has everything to do with your caring for other people. So there really is no legitimate reason why a Christian would not be seriously involved in the care of other people in some form. It just is no excuse for it. And so when you say yes to Jesus, you're really signing up to be a deliverer. But some people don't seem to get that, and, and, and that's between them and the Lord. But today I'm going to talk to you about that calling and how God uses remarkably difficult things in our lives to prepare us to be deliverers of others. Father, would you come now and open our hearts? Would you open the word so that it lives in us? Would you grace me so that we can hear you and not me? I pray, Lord, for you to speak to us and feed us. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask the question, first of all, what does it mean to be a deliverer? What is a deliverer? Moses was a great deliverer. In his case, God used him to deliver two million people out of slavery. Well, I simply looked it up in the dictionary, and Webster couldn't have done any better uh, in his definitions. He said that, Delivering someone means to set them free from restraint, freeing people who are in bondage, or to rescue them from evil, or to lift a burden off those who are burdened. That's a pretty good definition, wouldn't you say? A deliverer is somebody who breaks the bonds. He's a bondage breaker and setting people free. A deliverer is someone who's rescuing out of evil. A deliverer is somebody who lifts a crushing weight off of somebody who's being overburdened and destroyed. 
I want to make a simple statement here that seems very obvious, but we just kind of need to get in touch with it. God uses people to deliver people. Say that with me. God uses people to deliver people. Let's say it again. God uses people to deliver people. Now, you may say, what's the big deal there? I mean, so? No, no. We often have it in our head that God can sort of do this by himself. He doesn't need us. You know, we'll pray, oh God, help that person. God, do something for them. But we don't feel any particular obligation to be personally involved. What I want us to understand here is God doesn't generally, rarely, I, I, I have a hard time putting my finger on any example where he delivered somebody without somebody being involved. How about you? How many of you would say, I can name people who have been significant in the delivering of my life, in my salvation, in my healing, in my deliverance? I've, God has used people. I can name them. I can tell you who they were. How many could say that? Yeah, see, virtually everybody. That's just the way the kingdom works. And that's a very significant point. God's going to use you and me to deliver other people. I cannot avoid that fact. God does not wave a magic wand over situations and transform them without people being involved. You know, I guess I, I thought about it. I thought, how would he have delivered two million people out of slavery to Egypt without a Moses? Well, I thought of a way. Maybe he hadn't. He could have said, all right, and then all of Egypt, all the Egyptians would suddenly freeze in place. Well, actually, if it's Egyptians, they go... And, and they're now frozen in, in, for maybe 36 hours. And while they're standing there frozen, the Israelites pack up their stuff, maybe take a little bit of their neighbor's stuff, and head out across the Sinai Peninsula. See, God could have delivered them without any person being a deliverer, but he didn't. He prepared a man. He prepared a man from, from his birth to deliver those people. That's how God works. He works through us. And you need to be, I guess you and I need to own the fact that we are part of that process. Freeing, rescuing, unburdening people is a hard, messy work. And it must, there must be qualities in a person to be a deliverer. God has to work in us and prepare us. You're not just automatically ready to deliver other people. So God invests much time in preparing a deliverer. Who does he call to be a deliverer? I want to just show you something. Turn to me, with me to Exodus chapter 19. God has always, this, this I'd, I've known this for years, but it was a real surprise to me when I discovered it. God has always wanted to use all his people to deliver others. In the Old Testament, you know, we're very aware that there was the priesthood and all of that kind of thing. But do you know that the priesthood was plan B? The priesthood in Israel was not God's intention. It was what he was forced to because the people refused their assignment. Look at this, chapter 19, verse 3. God went up, uh, pardon me, Moses went up to God. He's there at Mount Sinai. And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now look at verse 6. And you shall be to me, what? A kingdom of priests. Do you see that? You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. God's intention for Israel that it was that every man and woman would be priests to him. The entire nation would serve him as a priestly people. Now, did that work out? No, it did not work out. It wasn't very long before they so renounced their faithfulness to the Lord that it ended up being forced to, to be just one small group, the Levites, who became the priests of Israel. It was a sad thing. It was an accommodation. It was plan B. It was a failure. That They forced it to become a, a sect of religious workers. Isn't that terrible? Go, that's terrible. Of course, we would never do that now. Now, the, the, when you look at church history, we would never do the same thing of, of forcing priestly ministry and deliverance of others to just a small cast of professional workers. We understand that the whole body of Christ is to be deliverers, don't we? Amen. Let's look at First Peter. Of course, my point is we're just as bad as Israel. We, we don't, don't ever look at them and say, what were they thinking? But just look at church history and say, what were we thinking? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Peter says, speaking to us as Christians, he says, you also as living stones, human beings being gathered together into this great temple of the Lord, built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices, a acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he talks about Jesus being the cornerstone upon which we are all, from which we all take our, our orientation. And then verse 9 he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal what? Priesthood, a holy nation. Same words, do you notice that? He's saying what God intended for Israel and what they renounced is yours now, church, believers in Jesus Christ. It's coming around again. The potential to be a whole entire priesthood of all followers, all believers in Jesus Christ. Now, how have we done? We did the same thing, didn't we? We very shortly forced it into a professional group of religious workers. Morning, Reverend. We, 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 that's not my work. Well, we pay you to do that kind of thing. This whole attitude that, that has this, don't ask me to do that, I, I'm just a layman. That's for paid professionals. It's a violation of what God has intended from the very beginning, Old Testament and New. If we have the eyes to see it, Jesus calls every believer to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. How many say, I'm willing to be part of that priesthood and that nation because that's the call today. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, the fact that we've done this has severely limited the work of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 10, verse 2, the Lord says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are what? Laborers are few. He says, there are many people 
who would come to salvation. There are many people who would receive ministry from God. There are many people who are longing to be touched by God, but I haven't got enough workers. That's his conclusion. The harvest is plentiful. We could have a ton of wheat, but I haven't got enough workers to work in the fields. That's what holds up the show, and it does today. It breaks my heart that almost anywhere you go, you can bring people to Christ. Almost anywhere you go, there are hungry, lonely people who are willing. Yes, there's some knotheads out there, but there are not that many. There are some people that don't want anything to do. All right, fine. But you're going to find tons of people who do. Little bit of love, little bit of patience, little bit of kindness, little bit of humility with them, and their hearts open up. And if we had people who would see themselves as deliverers, see themselves as a holy priesthood, see that God has anointed them and called them, willing to listen, willing to obey, all of a sudden the kingdom just goes, it just ramps up. And salvation begins to spread and healing begins to spread like, like wildfire. God was preparing Moses as a deliverer. If you and I are willing to be deliverers, I'm suggesting today that some of these same elements are going to be in our preparation. Let's see what they are. Chapter, back to Exodus 2, uh, chapter, pardon me, chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to see here the first element. Now, a man went from the house of Levi and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was good, is what the Hebrew says, like God saw his, all that he had created, it was good. He was good. Uh, he was beautiful. She hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch and then put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Now just reflect on this for a moment. The, the order had been given by the Egyptian government that all male Hebrew children were to be thrown into the Nile River, which was full of crocodiles, and killed. This was a genocide that was going on trying to restrict their growth. Can you imagine being one of those mothers? Can you imagine this woman giving birth? I'm sure she gave birth in secret. She probably tried to hide her pregnancy. Undoubtedly, she would refuse to scream during birth. I mean, she's holding on, can make no noise. The baby must not be known by anyone. Uh, she would smother the child's cries, can't be heard outside the hut. It's a terrible environment, a murderous environment that Moses was born into. And so... Mom has to hide him. My guess is that the Egyptian military would sweep the, the slave camps about every quarter. It says she could hide him for about three months. So about every quarter, probably, there was a sweep looking for male babies. And when, undoubtedly, a sweep was coming. And she knew that this would happen. And so she's, this poor mother is, is, is in this agonizing, horrific situation and I think she prayed. I think she, I'm speculating here, but I, I think uh, her name is Yochebed. She, I, I think she prayed and the Lord gave her a word of wisdom. And the Lord said, go ahead, obey Pharaoh. Throw him in the river. But put a boat under him first. <laughs> and, and so in effect, she did obey the law. She, she took her baby and she put him in the river, but had a boat under him. They put him out in the thick reeds. There's lots of reeds along the Nile. And 
There are crocodiles, but they won't as likely be in there, and, and it would also hold the basket from going with the current. So she must have waded out and put him out into the thick part of the reeds. She probably has to report back to a work gang. And so she leaves and leaves her daughter, Miriam, and says, watch him. And then with her heart in her mouth, just in agony, she walked back home or to her work assignment. What happened? Well, Miriam's standing at a distance watching little brother. And then the daughter of Pharaoh. Wow, what a, what a, what a coincidence. Pharaoh's daughter uh, came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds. My guess is she first heard a baby crying. A three-month-old uh, out there in that thing after a while is going to talk, tell the world about his condition. And so he's out there crying and they're going, what is that? And they finally spot this thing out in the reeds. And she sent her maid and brought it to her. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now Miriam must have come running up, or she spotted Miriam, and she said, come here, child, do you know who's, what, what, whose baby this is? And, and uh, Miriam may have, uh, I don't know what she would have answered, but she said, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women so that she may nurse the child? Pharaoh's daughter thought a minute. There is a record, by the way, of, 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 a, of, of, of a woman. We may even have her name. Uh, it, she was barren, and she did adopt. And so she, here's, a, here's a, a barren woman longing for a child. Here's a beautiful little boy. And she says, yeah, go get his mother. Uh, she didn't say that. She said, go get the nurse, and I shall give you your wages, so the woman took the child, or pardon me, uh, Miriam got mom, of course, and then the Pharaoh's daughter pays the mother to nurse the child until he can be weaned, and the woman took the child and nursed him. That would have been about three years, probably. About three years that Moses was left with mom. You know, this, you look at it in one sense, it's a wonderful testimony, isn't it? What a remarkable deliverance of little Moses. Suddenly, he is now protected as royalty in the Egyptian government. My goodness. Uh, talk about going from being at risk to being protected. God did a wonderful thing there. But, but let's not mistake the pain that's here. Mother's now got to raise her baby knowing that she's going to give him away. That's an agony. He grows up and... It, He's, by the time he's a, th a three-year-old child's talking, walking, running around, the three-year-old child is, knows mommy and daddy. And all of a sudden, one day, that little sweetheart's going to be taken, I would bet by dad, because mom's home screaming. And is taken up to this strange compound and handed to somebody who doesn't look like them and talks a language they don't even, he doesn't even know. And is, a, and is abandoned. Now, Pharaoh's daughter's adopting this boy. She doesn't want Jochebed showing up all the time. So that's the end. You know, Moses later on will comment that he has trouble with his speech. You know, this kind of trauma could sure do that. All of a sudden, he's, he's completely immersed into a foreign language at three years of age, and his parents abandon him. 
Don't mistake the suffering that's here. This is a terrible story. And a wonderful story. We see God's hand, and yet there's horrible pain in it. First of all, I want to suggest to you that as God prepares you as a deliverer, he will use your suffering. He will use your suffering. He uses even the horrible events of our lives for good. He doesn't cause the evil. He didn't cause this. This is not his idea. This is him creatively working with evil. Now, when he's done, it's so beautiful, it almost looks like plan A. You think, this is incredible. Well, that's God. He's just that smart. But this is an evil environment he's having to work with. He's so skilled, he can use it for his good. Romans 8.28 says that he causes all things to work together for good, but not for everybody. He doesn't cause all things to work for good for everybody. Only a certain group of people. And he tells us who they are. What are the qualifications? Do you remember? He caused all things to work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Those who have said yes to God's call. Now, for those who say yes to God's call and love him, now God takes and literally trans can transform your past. He can turn the horrors of the past, the suffering of the past, into gold. He can make it work for you. He can make a blessing out of something that was horrific. I'm talking about abandonment and all that's going on in, in, in Moses' life, but in the, just through this congregation. There'll be stories in your past, things that have gone in your life that are horrible. Just horrible. God didn't cause them. Evil caused it. Sin caused it. Stupidity caused it. You say, I'm wounded. I'm ruined. No. Not when you say yes to the call. No. Watch this. Actually, paraphrase 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Actually, just a couple of the verses. But I'm going to read my paraphrase. Paul says, Paul describes here how God uses our suffering. It's a very precious passage. He says, God is the one who comforts us in all our affliction. In order to, the Greek, uh, there's a particular construction that is absolutely unmistakable. It means so that, with the purpose that, in order to, that kind of thing. There's a, there's a reason for it, it's what he's saying. God is the one who comforts us in all our afflictions so that, in order to empower us to share that comfort, the comfort we've received from God with others who are suffering. As you are comforted by God in your pain. God takes that lesson, that, that peace, that faith, that healing, and you become an effective instrument in ministering comfort to others. Something about suffering teaches us compassion. Suffering teaches us compassion and faith for the comfort of others. God can do that. Now, doesn't, suffering doesn't do that in a person who doesn't follow his call and love Jesus. 
suffering just makes them bitter. But to a person who says yes to the call and becomes a servant in the hand of the Lord, God takes and he uses your horrific pain and turns it into something remarkable. Through suffering, we discover greater depths of God's comfort, which increases our ability to comfort others. For example, I spent a couple of decades in chronic depression. Not the blues. I know what real depression is and had it really bad, I think. As I look back on it, it's amazing that God carried me through it. When I see someone else who's depressed, they don't need to explain to me what they're feeling. In fact, I can spot a depressed person across the room. It's just a look. And if you've been one, you spot it easy. It's intuitive. It's, it's just, I don't try to. I, just, I can just spot it. For example, some of you have, have lived with alcoholism. You've been an alcoholic. Well, you can spot a drunk person across the room. Now me, I've hardly tasted this stuff. So I'm as dumb as a post. You can fool me. Somebody say, they were drunk. Really? I don't even know. I, I'm just out of touch. It's not my area. I mean, I care about it. I pray for people, but, you know, I'm not real good at that. Depression? Aha, I can catch you coming in the foyer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why? That's an area where I've suffered. Where I have suffered, I become sensitized. I develop an intuitive understanding of it and a, and a compassion for it. I talked to someone last night who's had horrible depression from, from childhood and I think we, the Lord gave us the root of it. But I said to him, now I want you to understand something. I've got a number of people in the church who have been depressed and they've come up for prayer on a regular basis and I said, you're free to do that and know this. I'm not going to despise you for coming up over and over again. You see, I understand depression. I know you're not, you're not trying to be, you're not, you know, people who are depressed often think, oh, they prayed for me and I'm still bad. They're going to hate me. You know, People who haven't dealt with depression always have these helpful things like, just think positively. And you're going, right, we're trying. They don't get it. They often just don't get it. They don't understand. They haven't had the disease. They don't know what this is. They're trying, but they don't understand. But somebody who's had it, and who God has actually delivered. And I was able to tell this man last night about God's deliverance of me. And he could tell I got it. I knew. That gives hope and comfort. I could comfort him at a level that someone who hasn't been through it can't. Doesn't mean you can't provide comfort, but it's not quite the same. I'll have mothers come up with their children, single moms, you know, just terrified, saying, I don't know how I'm going to raise this child, particularly their little boys. How am I going to raise this boy without a dad? Well, my parents separated when I was 18 months old. I have never known a father. Now, I'm able to look at that woman and say, God will do it. He's a great father. And my eyes snap when I say it. I got a passion in this thing. Why? I've lived it. I've had this comfort. I know this reality. I'm not guessing. I'm not taking some book I read. I'm telling you, he'll do it. See, when you, when you say yes to the call, 
the horrors of your life, the pain of your life, the brokenness of your life suddenly gets transformed and God uses it for good. I could go through several areas where I have experienced it and it's tenderized me. You know, suffering gives us an intuitive understanding of certain types of suffering. The ones we've suffered. Doesn't mean we can't give any help to anyone else, but it means that you're specially effective there. My wife was not, is not a depressed person. She's a very, well, sunny person. <laughs> Almost to a fault. She keeps seeing the positive sides, and I keep thinking, can't you see the darkness? You know, it's, it's like Pollyanna got married to Eeyore. And... Uh, God knew what I needed, boy. I keep... And, and she, a few years ago, she had an episode of depression. And it was really odd and out of character for her and everything else. But, but she said this to me. She said, you know, she said, I never really understood what you were feeling. She said, I tried. I, I tried to understand. But, but now I know what you were feeling. She said, I'm sorry, Stephen, that's terrible. Why? She now has an intuitive understanding because she's tasted that bitterness. God can use it to help us comfort others. He also, with our suffering, gives us compassion. We're sensitized to the pain of others who suffer in the same way we did, particularly. An example I'm using, and it's, it's just no secret, Sandra had a period of her life in which she had poverty and hunger. Well, she came to us and she said, you know, I'm just tremendously concerned for the people who are going without food and who are hungry. Would you mind if we did some ministry in that area? Oh, I'd be terrible. I was delighted, obviously. I mean, but what I had here was a person who had an inner drive to, fix, to do this. I wasn't having to motivate. I wasn't having to push and coax. This person had that motivation in her heart. And so we've developed the food pantry. And we feed, I think, 120 families a week uh, through that food pantry. And if, as we've been doing it for many years. Because you see that compassion is, is, a, is a deep abiding thing. It's not an attitude that you read in a book. It's something that's in there. And so she continues to guide that thing. And one of the things I notice about it is just the dignity with which we treat people. It's not a pity thing. It's not a let us help you people in need kind of thing. It's, there's not a paternalism to it. There's a, it's, it's just beautiful. I mean, it's, it's, it's downright, it's, it's gorgeous the way the thing's set up. There's tremendous dignity and love that's expressed in it. Why? Because there's a compassion that's been worked of pain. Those moments of pain, those seasons of, of, of poverty and of suffering have now been translated into gold by the grace of the Lord, because we've answered the call, because we've answered the call to them that are called according to his purpose. You, you, you say yes to the call, and your past is transformed. You say no to the call, and your past is a bitter history of one thing after another. It gives us faith also in the power of God to deliver and to heal. In that area especially, most of the people who work effectively in healing have been healed themselves. An example, a classic example is Oral Roberts. 
When he was a young man, he had terrifically serious tuberculosis and was dying from it. And God suddenly healed him. Well, after that kind of healing, it's a no-brainer. When someone comes up and you go, God can heal. He healed me. See, something's put in you when God does his comfort, when his healing comes in you. Second thing that he used in Moses' life was his failure. Hallelujah. His suffering taught him compassion. What did we learn from failure? Look at verse 11. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he looked out to his brethren, went, to, went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. What he, he is is he's been raised an Egyptian prince. He's one of the royalty. He's been living in compounds and running around in chariots. And uh, he knows he's a Hebrew and he gets curious. This is at about 40 years of age. He didn't get curious any too soon. And he decides to go out and have a look at their, their plight. What are, my, what are my, my genetic inheritance? What are they going through? And so he goes out to have a look at them. And he saw an Egyptian beating, very severely, a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And so he looks this way and that. And when he saw there was no one around, he struck down. Apparently went up, clonked him over the head. And killed the Egyptian taskmaster who was brutalizing the other and hid him in the sand. There's lots of sand in Egypt to hide people in. And he went out the next day. He was rather certain no one had seen him. He'd already checked the landscape. So he thought he'd gotten away with it. Uh, but uh, probably the fellow whose life had been spared went and, went and told right away. He went out and the, the next day and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender... Why are you striking your companion? He's got this high moral tone. He's trying to um, be the generous leader here. But the man said, Who made you a prince or judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Boy, the word's out. And then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. All along, I would suppose, Moses was kind of um, under the eye of the Egyptian government. He's a Hebrew, but he's been made Egyptian royalty. Obviously a very bright uh, man. With all of his education, with all of his abilities, he would be a tremendously dangerous leader if he turned loyalty. If he became a turncoat against the Egyptians. If he, if he sided with these Hebrews who are a threat to us. Uh, there's two million of them. Uh, they're, 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 they're a strong uh, people and they're a dangerous people for us. They were afraid of them. If, if, if we ever saw a turn of heart in Moses... He would be a danger to us. And then suddenly, his heart shows. He kills an Egyptian taskmaster in defense of a Hebrew slave. The word's out. Pharaoh says, kill him on the site the and send soldiers after him. Well, he's already gotten the word that the, the, he already knows that soon enough it'll get to Pharaoh. And so he's headed across the Sinai Peninsula. And then he goes about 250 miles to the east to the land of Midian. Talk about a barren, out-of-the-way, off-the-main-line spot. 
He had to get away from caravans. He had to get away from any oversight. And he found it in Midian. Well, if you think about it, Moses' intentions in that effort to deliver his people were right, weren't they? Here's one of the Hebrews being brutalized. And his heart and compassion comes up for them. And he kills the Egyptian who was oppressing. He's even in touch, you might say, with his calling. He's called to be a deliverer. And so he's going to deliver this Hebrew person. Only the problem is, he's doing it in his own intelligence. He's doing it in his own strength. He's doing it in a human sense without the inspiration, leadership, or power of God. How does it work? Oh, it just creates havoc. It did, it did absolutely nothing. God let him try to minister in his own power and fail. Our preparation must always include discovering how powerless we are to help. God loves your failures. It's essential that you fail. The man or woman who has not failed and discovered their powerlessness and grown exasperated with their own inabilities is a danger. They're proud and self-reliant, and they will indeed hurt people. God uses our failures. How many of you can say, oh, well, I, if that's what he needs, I've got a number of those babies. I am well supplied to be a deliverer. Say, thank you, Jesus, for my failures. Come on, say it. Thank you, Jesus, for... All right, now the rest of you say, thank you, Jesus, for my failures. Come on. That was half-hearted at best. <laughs> you may not believe it, but they're a good thing. They really are. There's a point where you're going to say, well, if anything's going to happen in my life, God's going to have to do it because I can't. Now you're ready to be a deliverer. When I went to seminary, they told us we had to have a field experience. And so you had to go out and work in a church. And so I shopped around and the Lord led me to one little Presbyterian church. And as after about the, the second semester of my freshman year in seminary. And, and so I started out as a youth minister in this little church with two, two kids. I had two girls, one saved and, well, one got saved and the other one left. But I, I didn't know anything, and I knew I didn't know anything. I mean, I was dumb as a post. I, didn't, I hadn't even gone to church much. I'd gone to meetings and stuff, but I'd never really gone to a formal church. So what I knew was nothing. And so I took my Bible and my guitar, and I would just hang on to God at, at, in the early stages of this. Oh, God, show me what to do. I mean, I'm, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And I'm just desperately trusting him. And boy, the Lord blessed that. You know, and kids got saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit, and the thing was growing. And, uh, but I'm going to seminary, so I'm learning what you're supposed to do. And so after a while, I start thinking, well, I'm going to start teaching these kids some of the stuff I'm learning. Hallelujah. And so I began to teach these, uh, these young people. I began to talk to them about the eschatological manifestation of the ground of being. That indeed, Christ is our kerygma, manifested in crisis and decision in the humanizing process. <laughs> okay. 
And they're looking at me like either or. And the, boy, it was amazing. The more I used my head and the more I began to apply what I was learning, the worse it got. The thing that the thing just went, you know, the kids are just bored and I'm bored. And, and finally I thought, this isn't working. I got to go back to being dumb. I'm, I, this, I cannot import this stuff. It ain't working. And so I just went back to letting the spirit lead. And that seemed to work a whole lot better. Failure is an extremely important experience. In John 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the source of life and strength. You're attached into me. He who abides remains attached in me, and I in him. He bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do how much? Absolutely nothing. You can do stuff. You can grow groups. You can do all kinds of things, but nothing of spiritual purpose and meaning. Nothing of eternal value. You create a fleshly mess apart from him. Apart from me, you can do nothing of eternal significance. Now, we don't really believe that. Our nature does not really believe that. We think it's fun, we'll help God. But we don't really get it. So God uses failure. He loves our failures. He loves us to come to an end of ourselves. Moses tried to be a deliverer and made a mess of it and ended up wanted dead or alive by the Egyptian government and living in the most dusty, dry, forsaken spot I can imagine. I got pictures of Midian. I may show them to you. And I am not exaggerating. It's appallingly desolate. That's a good thing. He's preparing his deliverer. This man's got to deliver two million people. If he's going to be worth anything, he's got to be a failure. Hallelujah. I don't know that you're convinced. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, Paul talks about his own weakness. And he says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And therefore, Paul says, I will, I will rejoice in my weaknesses that Christ may be exalted in me. I'll rejoice in my weakness. Hallelujah for my weakness so that God can be seen through. Through failures, we learn humility. Humility, a lack of reliance in self. And real humility means a transference of that reliance to God. A really humble person isn't a weak person. A really humble person is a dependent person on the power of the Holy Spirit. Through suffering, we learn what? This is a test. You will know by the time I'm done. Through suffering, we learn what? Compassion. Say it. You learn compassion through your sufferings. Through your failures, through our failures, we learn what? Humility. Through our suffering, we learn compassion. Through our failures, we learn humility. God transforms them. And our last one, verse 16, God uses our frustrations as well. 
Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to fill their father, uh, to water their father's flock. So he's got all daughters, so they're out herding his uh, sheep and goats. And then the shepherds came, the male shepherds, others in the area, and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them water their flock. The women had gone to the well, and you run the the bucket down on a rope and pull it up and pour the water into this little stone troughs and the animals will come and drink from that. Well, they'd done all of the work of pulling those, the rope up and watering uh, all of these animals and then these bully men show up and say, get out of here, gals, and, 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 and just push them aside, took the water that they'd already drawn and began to water their flocks. Well, Moses is sitting there watching this thing and at some point, he can stand it no longer, and he stands up and he, sa- he stands up and he says, Gentlemen, that's no way to treat a lady. <laughs> and these shepherds are looking at him and saying, Who are you, stranger? You're new to these parts, aren't you? And he says, I said that's no way to treat a woman. And I would imagine that that group of shepherds didn't just back off because this Egyptian didn't like it. I would have a... But you know something? You know the Egyptian royalty is going to have been taught military arts. That always happens. So one thing he is, is a good soldier. And so at some point, it may have been necessary for Moses to put one of them on his head. And he just sort of, whatever, you know, and thwomp. And everybody else goes, okay, I'm seeing the point right now. And those seven daughters are loving it. You know they're giggling through this whole thing. Well, he not only does he he drive those shepherds off, but he continues to pull the water up and draw water. This is no dummy. And he pours in all water for all these women. It says then, when, they came, when the shepherds came and drove them, oh, excuse me, verse 18, they came to Raul, that's the name of their father. Another name is Jethro, but Jethro's probably a title. When they came to Raul, their father, he said, well, why have you come back so soon today? You always get bullied by those other shepherds and come home in the dark. What's going on? And they said, an Egyptian, and oh, he's cute, uh, delivered us from the... <laughs> hand of the shepherds, and what's more, he even drew water for us and watered the flock. Giggle, 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 giggle. (laughs) And he said to his daughters, what are you thinking? I've got seven of you, and you left him there? When, When he's, where is he? Why did you leave him behind? And go get him, invite him to dinner. What are you thinking? And so somebody went back out, and invited him back to dinner. And Mo- it says Moses was willing to dwell with the man. It wasn't long before uh, Rule decided this is a good man. And said, why don't you live with us, uh, stranger? Stay here. And uh, then he gave his daughter Zephora to Moses as a wife. And she gave birth to a son. And he named him Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Actually, the name Gershom is, I would be, a, be close to our word fugitive. Someone who has been cast out. He's been cast out of Egypt. He's on the run for, for his life. He's separated from his own people. He's a castaway. And so he names his son bitterly, fugitive. 
I'm a fugitive. How long, does anybody know how long he lived in Midian? Out in that dust and rocks and heat, herding his father-in-law's flocks. Forty years! How many know that's a long time? Forty miserable years. Now he started out thinking of himself as, as, a, as, as an Egyptian leader who's been trained in all of this. Forty years later, he's a basket case. When God finally shows up and says, I'm calling you, M Moses says, uh, you don't want me. He says, no, no, find somebody else, please, not me. His entire self-esteem is just about shattered. God takes a long time to prepare a deliverer. Our personal development takes much longer than we would ever willingly give it. He was 40 when he got there, and he spends 40 more years. By the time we're having this process of, the, of his calling, he's 80 years old. You know, at some point you figure, I'm too old for it to matter. Moses spent 40 years herding another man's livestock in the barren wilderness of Midian. The proud son of Pharaoh's daughter must have thought he'd been totally forgotten. He didn't realize there were things that God was waiting for. God lets us wait. God lets us be frustrated. God puts us in situations where we feel forgotten. What was he waiting for? Well, some of the things he was waiting for. One is the death of some of the Egyptian leaders. He was waiting for the Israelites to start praying. They hadn't prayed up until the end. But he waited for his ambition to die. He was waiting for any thought of greatness to die. Why? Because people that are ambitious aren't patient with those in bondage. Ambitious people drive people. Ambitious people use people. Ambitious people see people as a commodity to meet their needs. And God has to break our ambition and our thoughts of greatness. And those break slower and harder in some people than others. Through frustration, God produces patience in us. And no one can be a deliverer unless they are patient with people. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. We have to learn to wait for God's timing or we'll hurt people all the more. Through his suffering... God taught Moses something important. What was it? Compassion. He could understand people that hurt. Through his failure, God taught Moses what? Humility. His own powerlessness to save or rescue anybody. That if anything good was going to happen, God was going to do it. And through his frustration, 40 years of hurting another man's sheep, he broke his ambition and taught him what? Patience. 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 Compassion. Humility. Patience. Do those sound like the qualities of a deliverer? Of a man who could be used to deliver two million people? 
Compassion, humility, and patience? Absolutely. God's ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts, but his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and his ways are higher than our ways. If I say yes to the call, to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, God takes our past, he takes the suffering, the failures, the frustrations of our lives, and he transforms them till they're gold, till they become a blessing in our lives. But it hinges on my decision to say yes to the call. Would you bow your heads? Who today would say, I choose to be a deliverer of others. I know God uses people to free people, to heal people, to deliver people. People like me. And I, I say yes to that call. I will follow the Lord's purpose for my life. How many of you are saying right now, I choose that call to be a deliverer of others. Would you lift your hand before the Lord? Thank you, Jesus. Just keep it there for a minute. Father, we're saying yes to the call. We're not, we're not playing games right now. We understand you will take us up on this call. And we say we will be used by you. We will be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We will not cast that away to other religious professionals and say it's not my job. But Lord, with family and friends and neighbors and people at work, wherever you would take us, we say yes to you, Lord. We embrace the call to be a deliverer of others, to lift the bondage, to rescue from evil, to take the burden off the back of those oppressed. Use us, Lord. Use us. And then, Lord, we thank you by faith now that in your wonderful, miraculous brilliant abilities. You can take our suffering, the horrors of our life even, and teach us a deep compassion for others who suffer. Do that, Lord. You can take our failures and you can teach us to be humble, dependent on you, coming in and attaching to the vine that we would bear much fruit. We receive that lesson. Work it deep in us. And then, Lord, for our frustrations, our long seasons of waiting and a feeling forgotten while you waited for our ambition to die, we would be patient with people. Patient, waiting for you. Come, Lord, work the marvelous qualities in us that we might be like Moses, a deliverer of others. In your mighty name we pray it and believe you'll do it. And if you do, would you say amen? Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.